2 Corinthians 10. Um, last week, uh, we, didn't, we weren't in 2 Corinthians. We had a guy named Phil that was here, and he loved being here. Um, he said that when he goes and kind of makes first visits to ministries, he, 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 he rarely expects to make any connections. He really just plans on introducing himself and then hopefully establishing a relationship to where maybe a student or two could eventually serve. But there was such a great response and such a great turnout at the, the dinner last Friday night. And he's, he's had some really, really good contacts. So he said it was one of the best first visits he's ever had. So that was really cool for, for Drew and Rachel and I to hear um, just that, that he is, yeah, that God is moving and that you guys are responding to maybe what God may be putting on your heart. So that was pretty cool. Second Corinthians 10. We're entering into a final kind of section in, in this book. And so it kind of gives me an opportunity to talk, kind of step back and look at the whole book. Okay, so you have, you have 13 chapters in 2 Corinthians. Chapters 1 through 6, Paul spends defending his apostolic ministry. And if you remember, he talks about things that he did, um, experiences he had, ways in which he suffered for the gospel, and how that is proof that, that what he's doing is actually from God, um, that they are actually proof that what he's doing is from God. And so he spends a lot of his time in the first six chapters defending his ministry. And then chapters 7, I would say, through 9, he has this theme of calling them to repentance because there's a group of people we'll talk about here in a second. There's a group of people in the church that are opposing Paul. It's, it's this minority group, but this, this, you know, just like it said, uh, you know, a bad piece can really affect the whole thing. A ba- little, 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 um, whatever, leaven can influence the whole dough. And so he's saying, like, there, there's a few of you, but if, if you listen to them, they'll, it'll, it'll change the, what's going on in this, in this ministry, in this church. And so he, he, uh, he's calling them to repentance and to not, and to not um, follow them, but he's also saying that this life of repentance should lead to generous living. And that was what chapters 8 and 9 were about. Um, and then, it, it, chapters 10 through 13, Paul transitions very clearly. We'll see here in verse, verse, verse 1 but transitions to confronting this malignant minority in preparation for his return, for Paul's visit back to Corinth. Because Paul doesn't want to return with, uh, with judgment and with condemnation for a few. He wants to come back and celebrate the whole. He wants to come back. He wants it to be a joyous return. And so Paul, a couple things about this. Paul saved some of his strongest language for the end of his letter. His most passionate language, his... His most accusational language comes in these coming chapters. Um, and again, he, he, um, he's hoping that, that, they, that they don't just, he's not trying to be strong just to be strong and impress them. He's really wanting to confront so that they repent so that when he does return, it is more of a joyous occasion. So let me, let's start. I need somebody to read. Who has an ESV that would read? Okay. Caleb? No? Okay, extra con- actually in this in this uh, this chap this chapter is probably extra confusing because it is choppy. ESV, quick little you know tr- translation differences. ESV is more on the side of more accurate in terms of its word for word translation, but but because the Greek is choppy, the ESV is choppy. But anyway, it took me about a hundred times reading through this thing to figure out what. How it flows, how it works. So we'll see how Caleb does. No pressure. No pressure. Uh, chapter ten, uh, do verses one and two. Okay. I Paul myself entreat you by the meekness and justness of Christ. I who am humble with face to face with you, as bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Okay. So he starts off he starts off this and he makes a very clear statement, I Paul. Now, um, about four other times in his letters when he makes that statement, he's he's getting ready to assert his authority as an apostle. So he's saying, I Paul, right? So he's wanting to make a very clear stand that what I'm about to say to you, it's me, Paul talking. I'm I'm 
And everything that God has given me is coming with, is, is coming with what I'm saying here. And so he, he, um, and he starts off by entreating and begging in the ESV. Entreating and begging. I entreat you. I beg of you. Paul has this weird, not weird actually, a very natural um, integration of warning and pleading, like pleading for them. Um, he's not afraid to warn them of the danger that's coming if they continue down the path they're heading or they continue to listen to these, these, these men who oppose Paul. He, he's warning them that like they're, they're, if they follow him, they're, follow them, they're walking further and further away from the gospel. So he, he's not afraid to warn them. But he also, like a father, comes and pleads, I love you, I care for you so much, I beg of you, don't do this. And so that's, that's a lot of the, the sentiment that is happening in these verses. And, and Paul will use some, some real strong um, metaphors and, and, and words here in just a second. But he's saying, listen, I, I came, um, I come in, in, in meekness and gentleness and he stops and he, and he says, I who, who when I'm humble when I'm face to face, but bold when I'm away. Now Paul's going to allude to this a little bit later. In fact, he's going to quote something that they, maybe one of those that oppose him say about him. Uh, because there was this misconception about Paul. He was real humble and more quiet and um, they perceived it as weakness. Like he's, he's weak and he's nothing. He sounds so impressive in his letters and he sounds so big and, and strong in his letters, but when he shows up, he's, he's like nothing. And, and what, what Paul's saying is, listen, that's, that's not weakness, that's meekness, that's humility that I'm coming with. He says, I don't want to come with the confidence that I have. I don't want to come with this and, 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 and meet you where you are right now. I want to come and I want to, I want to come in humility, but you're forcing me if you don't repent, you're forcing me to come with the confidence that I know I can against those who suspect. So, so that now is where he, in verse 2, is where he kind of pinpoints, like he's going to mention them a couple times in our section. Um, those who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So what does he mean by that? I think we'll find out here in the next few verses. So read 3 through 6. Okay, so Paul, um, so th- these these opponents that Paul had were were trying to convince the people that that Paul his ministry was was a contradiction. Uh, in the set, in essence, like they're questioning his character, they're questioning his honor, and and this is a very like honor shame culture, and so he he knows this is a big deal, um, but. Paul's been saying this all along. Paul's been trying to help them see like what what they're seeing and, and versus what is actually happening are, are two different things. Um, the church in Corinth was maybe similar to us, viewing power, viewing um, importance and success in ways that maybe our, our world defines it. You know, somebody who is somebody who's rich, somebody who's successful, somebody who can draw a crowd, somebody who's who speaks with such eloquence and authority. Somebody who, who seems powerful, you know, these are the kinds of people we should follow. And, and Paul's been saying along, listen, I want to redefine those words. Like, because those words are different in the kingdom. And like words like power and strength and weakness, those, those aren't what you think they are. And, and so he's going to talk about um, like this, this different standard that he lives by. Like what he measures things by is different than how they measure things, how these opponents are measuring things. And so Paul introduces war language. Um, listen, to, listen to these words, weapons and warfare, power, destroy, strongholds, captive, punish. Like these are, these are war language that Paul is, is injecting in here that, that are supposed to come with some force. The, the, we, we've read these so much. I mean, I, when, I, when I first started studying this, this is like, Oh yeah, oh yeah. That's where this this these verses are, and instead reading them in context, like whoa, like imagine 
imagine if I was writing you and, and like I started using this kind of language, I'm evoking certain pictures and certain kind of imagery. And that's certainly what Paul's doing. And I think it's really key to understand what, what kind of war Paul is wanting to rage or wage, what kind, of, what kind of battle he's wanting to fight, and how he defines that in verse 4, um, where it says, oh, I went too far. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, which is something he keeps battling against. They, they are seeing it one way, and he's redefining his, his ministry. He says, but have divine power. And again, that word power is a word that Paul's been big on redefining for them from the very beginning of this letter. It's divine power that Paul is doing these things with. It's divine power that's going to destroy these strongholds, these arguments, these, these lofty opinions. Um, and it's with divine power that he wants to like take captive these 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 thoughts that are against Christ, that are against the gospel, and and make them obedient to obedient to Christ. So that's that's what's going on here. And which brings me to something kind of interesting. Like I said, I'm f- real familiar with these um, with this verse. In fact, verse what is it? Verse five. To take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. I've, man, I've had a lot of, spent a lot of time with that verse. I guess I've taught that verse. I have relied on that verse. I've I've taken comfort in that verse. I've, that verse has been been very encouraging to me. Like that I can have a proactive. Um, there's like, it's I'm not just a victim to my own thoughts and my own thinking. That I can be proactive with them. And. And, and I was kind of taken back a little bit that I might be, and I don't think I fully am, but I might have been taking that a little bit out of context, or maybe too far, or I don't know, uh, maybe not. So here's what I mean. Whenever, you, whenever you're inter- interpreting Scripture, actually, whenever you're trying to apply Scripture, you first have to start with the meaning. And with, within the meaning, there is, we talk about this, um, the author's intended meeting, I guess when you're facing me, it'd be over here. The author's intended meeting. And then you go up and you try to figure out, okay, what's the universal principle? What's what's being taught? What what applies to all people at all time? What's kind of this the implications of this? And then now, how do we apply it to us, right? So it starts with them, it goes to everyone, and then to us. Well, with with uh, with application, these three words are really helpful. Meaning implications and then significance so whenever I'm applying something I need to understand okay what what's the meaning what's the author's intended meaning what are the implications here and then how is it then how is it significant to me um, an example would be the verse in, in Ephesians do not get drunk with wine which leads to debauchery but be controlled by the spirit so, in, in Paul's day, the context was wine that led to drunkenness, that led to debauchery, which is losing control, like not having control. But what Paul's emphasis on that verse is really not what not to do, but what to do, which is let the, let the Spirit have control of your life. Let, give, give the Spirit control. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. The implications are anything that, that um, would, con, would take control, anything that would like control you, don't do, right? So meth would, would work with that, okay? So Paul didn't know about meth, but meth kind of is in, in an implication of that verse, right? But is it just like narcotics and, and you know, is, you know, liquid or liquids or whatever, alcohol or whatever? I mean, is it just those things? Or what about, what about anything else that would take control of you? Um, what about pornography? Um, what about... Gambling, what about whatever, rage, like what if, what if there was things that just, so, so you see there's, there's the meaning, then there's the implications, and then there's like, for me personally, how is this significant to me? What is, what is the Spirit wanting to say to me through this verse? So when I, when I think about this verse, I think of meanings, implications, and significance, because here's the direct meaning is, is that Paul's dealing with false teachers. So here's what I think the direct meaning is Paul's apostolic authority to deal with false teaching. That's the direct 
point of this verse. That, that's, what he's, that's what he's saying. That's what we have. He's saying we, as he and Timothy, as apostles, have, have divine power to destroy these strongholds and these arguments and these lofty opinions and take captive these thoughts for the purpose of making them obedient to Christ. That's why, as apostles, that's what they're called to do. The implications are any thoughts or teachings that go against the teaching of Christ, um, that, that you have authority to take on, to wage war against. And so I think the, I think the implications kind of lean towards me as a, as a person, that you and I, as, as children of God, have been, have been given a mind, right? And God says, um, love me with your mind. God says things like, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Philippians 4 says, you know, think about what's true and noble and right and pure and excellent and praiseworthy. And so there is a proactive nature that, that you, ha- you are, like you are given authority to take captive these things that may control you or that may um, lies that you may believe, lustful thoughts that may happen, prideful thoughts or self-condemning thoughts. That's a big one. Or self-exalting thoughts is to say, okay, Lord, like you don't want that here. Like this isn't, that doesn't belong in my mind. And I think, I think those are maybe ways that, that God may want to apply that, this verse in significant ways to you and me. So I think it does work. But like I said, I realize that the, the direct meaning is Paul's apostolic authority to, to demolish these things that we're working against the ministry. All right, let's move on to the next section of this, like this, this, this chapter is verses 7 through 11 where Paul gives the purpose of and the way in which he exercises his authority. Um, read, read 7 and 8. Okay, Paul says, see with your eyes. He's wanting them to see. He's kind of changing his, his, his approach at this point a little bit. And saying, now I want you to see what's, what, what's reality. See with your eyes what's happening. And he says, those of you, those who are opposing me, do they see themselves as in Christ? And I, I think the assumption would be yes. Then ask themselves, how did they get to know Christ? How did they come to know Christ? And, it, and what Paul's saying is, we're in Christ. We brought Christ to them. They didn't know Christ before us. So what Paul's challenging is if you're going to question, if they're going to question my authority, then they need to question whether or not they actually even know Christ. If they're questioning whether or not I am from God and have His authority, then how do they know Christ? Is, is essentially, I think, what Paul's saying here. They, if they know Christ, remind them that we introduce them. We know Him and we introduce them to Him. Um, verse 8, he says, he states the, what I believe to be the purpose of his authority, which I think is a key to this whole chapter, is to build them up, not to tear them down. Um, those that are opposing him are essentially tearing down what God has established there. And so Paul is saying, that's why I'm, I'm willing to wage war against these guys, because what they're doing is tearing down, and what I'm called to do is build up. So even though it seems like I'm fighting against, I'm ultimately, my heart is to to build up what they are seeking to, to tear down. Read 9 through 11. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is no penalty. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Yeah. So Paul is at some level, at some level, level threatening them. He's saying... Um, that you know his his reason for writing so strong is not to frighten them, but ultimately to call them repentance. And he and he's quoting them now. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his his speech of no account. And so again, they're they're picking up on what they perceive to be weakness, and and um, he's just trying to make himself more important than he really is. And he's not really God's man, and and all this stuff. And and he's saying. Um, what I say in my letter, I will do when I show up, unless you repent. Um, he doesn't want to come with, this, with that kind of 
of, uh, of embrace, but, but he's willing to do it. All right, now we're going to move into the last little section where Paul kind of bases, like he's, he's, Paul's going to evaluate their basis for claiming authority, because essentially that's what they're doing, and along he's going to evaluate it with his, his basis for authority in 12 through 18. So I think we'll go ahead and read the whole rest. So read 12 through 18. Okay, so Paul is being criticized by these people, and in doing so, what, what they're saying is, Paul doesn't have the authority, we do. And, and Paul's going to now judge, okay, let's see. Let's see what they're saying, and let's hold it up to what, what I have, and, and what, what I base my authority on. And, and so he, in verse 12, says, essentially, um, they compare themselves with themselves and are foolish. And he says, we don't, we don't engage in these carnal comparisons. Like To compare yourself with, with, with those who you already agree with is, is foolish. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm not, we don't engage in that kind of comparison. And it kind of reminds me of, um, I remember this moment when I was in high school, my senior year. Actually, probably would have, my, would have been my junior year. Um, so growing up, played baseball my whole life, was pretty decent at it um, in my little community. And so I was always one of the better kids on our little team in our little league, right? And then moving up through the ranks, you know, everybody stops playing, and I kept playing, and others kept playing. And I was always pretty decent, always one of the better kids on our team all the way into high school. And then, and then my junior year, we went to state, and all of a sudden, and, and so went to state with our school, and I was on a traveling team. We started traveling and playing teams around that were like outside of our little bubble and I realized oh there's some really good players out there like I thought I was good that's what good is like I think I could maybe like sit on a bench at a junior college those guys could start at a major university like that's now that I see like my eyes are open to oh okay I I was just looking around at my tiny little town and going I'm pretty good but when my eyes were open to what was happening, I think that's what Paul is kind of like. It's foolish to compare yourself with those that are right next to you that, that agree with you. That, but he's saying, listen, don't. That's not what we're doing. We don't we don't engage in those kind of carnal comparisons. We don't we don't compare the way the world does. And and so he's critiquing them. Verse thirteen, he says, we don't we don't boast about outside um, our uh, we don't boast outside our proper limits. And he's implying that they're boasting outside the measure and the influence in which God's given them. Like, they're boasting about something that, that God hasn't given them, and we don't do that, Paul says. We don't boast outside of the proper limits. And what Paul is saying is, actually, it's, it's okay to boast about the things that God is doing, and, and that's what we're doing. We're boasting about what he's doing. They're boasting outside of what, what they have had influence of. In verse 14, he says, we don't, we don't overextend ourselves. And he's implying they're overextending themselves here. In verses, the end of 14 and 15, he says, We have reached you and, 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 and do not boast in other people's labor, but we're going to boast in what God has done through us in you. And he's implying like they're relying on our ministry. Like they're, they're, they're turning around and criticizing the very ministry that has introduced them to Christ and and. And, and he says in verse 16, 15 and 16, we don't just, we aren't just boasting about what God is doing. We hope to continue um, beyond you. Like we hope that your faithfulness would increase in such a way that it would allow us to do ministry beyond you. We know that Paul wanted to go to Spain. We know that there was other 
other areas and influences that he wanted to have. And he was hoping, that was his hope, was to extend the mission, to enlarge the influence beyond them. And then he ends, verse 17 and 18, We boast in the Lord who commends us. And he's implying that they commend themselves and therefore boast in themselves. And he quotes from Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, which you should write down and look up later or look up with me right now if you want. Um, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 are verses that I think should be underlined or memorized. They're great, great verses. But what's interesting about Jeremiah 9 is it's no coincidence. Paul's quoting from this chapter that is all about judgment and it's all about a call to repentance. And so I think, that, like I said, there's no coincidence here. That's, that's exactly what Paul is kind of getting at. But Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, and that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So, um, that's, that's the quote that Paul is quoting from. Like, don't boast in things that, that you don't have. And don't boast in things that God has done. But boast in what He has done. Boast in Him. Boast that you know Him. And that's about all the boasting that we can do. Paul's going to talk a lot about boasting. In fact, um, the word boast comes up 21 times in the book of 2 Corinthians. And 16 times in chapters 10, 11, and 12. So, He's going to talk quite a bit. Uh, he talks in, about boasting in, in 2 Corinthians more than any, by far more than any other book, any other letter that Paul writes. So we're, we're going to talk more and more about Paul's understanding of boasting in the coming weeks. But um, this last thing I want to say is this idea of self, self-commendation versus God's commendation. Commendating yourself based on what God has done um, versus self-commending, just commending yourself. And that's, that's what Paul is accusing these, these, these uh, opponents of doing. So here in a second, uh, Drew's going to get up and we're going to take a break, but I want to kind of leave with this question. Um, what criteria, what standard, what measurement do we use to, to determine if a leader or if a ministry is successful? How do you determine if something is successful in the Lord? What, what criteria, what way of, what standard, what, how do you measure, how do you determine if a leader or, or even a ministry or a church is, is successful and faithful? So we'll talk a little bit about that in a little bit. Take a break. All right. Let's jump into it. We would love to see you there. Prayer meeting on Wednesday. Love the opportunity to pray along with you guys over some of the things that we feel like God is doing in our ministry and leading us towards. So we'd love to see you there. Um, One of the worst qualities that you could ever attach to a person or, or label a person as is boastful or braggadocious. I don't know if anybody ever uses that word. It's expialidocious. Um, but to, to, be, to, to be the kind of person who likes to talk themselves up, who likes to tell you about all the amazing things they've done, um, no, one, no one wants to be that person and no one wants to be around that person. You, you might like Kanye West's music, but nobody wants to hang out with that guy. Um, there's something about the kind of person, I know Jalen's a big Kanye West fan, I can just tell over there. Um, uh, no one wants to be around that person. That's one of those things that like, as a parent you have to like, work with. I've been working with uh, Hudson, I've just been using the phrase social cues to him over and over again this week. Because a, as a seven-year-old boy, he doesn't get social cues like when to tell your sister about um, something you saw awesome at Super Smash Bros. And when your sister is crying is not a good time to tell her about something awesome that happened in Super Smash Bros. Um, 
And so there are these little things that like kids don't get. And one of the things they need to get is people don't like it when you talk about yourself all the time, when you always talk yourself up. And, and so that's, that's kind of like almost a universal understanding is don't be a boastful kind of person. And that's why this Second Corinthians 10 seems to kind of hit home and, and make sense when Paul blasts these, uh, these false teachers or, or these super apostles as they call themselves for their boasting over the Corinthian church. And, and so many see this, this major attack in here, but the kind of odd thing about that is that also as you read this chapter, as he is dogging them for their boasting, you pay attention and he himself is boasting. Look at verse 8. Um, make sure I'm in the right spot. Yes, for even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. And then down in verse 13, he'll talk about, I'm not going to boast beyond limits. I am going to boast within the sphere that I've got. And as you go on, Paul or Scott said that Paul uses this word boast like crazy over the next three, four chapters. And they're not always about other people. He'll use it to talk about himself and his own boasting quite a bit. And so the question is, why does Paul dog their boasting so much and then go on to boast so much in his own life and boast about his own ministry and boast about his own stuff? We're going to see it a lot. First, you need to understand this, that what's going on here is not a popularity contest. What's going on is not a who's cooler contest where, where these two people are just trying to show who's done more amazing stuff or who's smarter or who's better, who's more talented. No, what's, what's at stake here is the, the hearts of the Corinthian church, the authority over this church. And so they're not, this isn't so much about just bragging for the sake of let me tell you how awesome I am. This is the other word that Paul uses, commending themselves. This is coming to the Corinthians and saying, let me tell you why you ought to trust me. Let me tell you why I ought to have authority here. And so what, what they're dealing with is, and what Paul is doing, is not so much just bragging for the sake of bragging, but commending himself, giving reasons why they ought to trust him as their apostle and as their authority. But the big problem that Paul has with these false teachers commending themselves is not necessarily the boasting. It, it, at least it doesn't. I wouldn't think that it is since Paul is doing his own boasting. His problem is not their boasting. His problem is their criteria for boasting. His problem is the things they choose to boast about. That's what he's going to take shots at in this chapter and a little bit on from there. Look at what he says in verse 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Other translations say they measure themselves by themselves, and they are not wise. But to do that is not wise. This is the problem. And then in verses 2 and 3, if you look back, you'll say, I... Um, I don't want to come up and sh uh, I don't want to have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Here's what he's saying there. Um, there are people who think that I'm operating by the same human standards they are when we judge authority and power. He says, now trust me, I am a human, I walk in the flesh, but I do not do battle according to the flesh. I do not keep score like they keep score. I do not, the, the weapons that I use are not the, the kind that the world gauges as beautiful and amazing. I'm doing something that may not appear as fancy, but is actually far more powerful. I don't fight like them. And, and kind of the imagery that I think maybe Paul might lend to you is a boxer who gets in a ring and evaluates his performance entirely by how cool his boxing trunks are or by how pretty his motion is whenever he takes jabs. But, but the whole time he thinks he's amazing, he's, he's taking shots the entire time, but because his trunks look pretty and because his form looks really smooth, he feels really great about himself. And Paul says, that's not the way you gauge your ability as a boxer. And that's not the way I'm going about it. Paul says, I'm, I'm here and I'm, I'm coming to battle, ready to fight. That's how you gauge is, is, is by how you fight. 
And so the, the false teachers, they had all these standards that they kind of came up with themselves. That is, they measure themselves by themselves. Their own rules for what makes a person really awesome, what makes a person authoritative. And, and those, those standards we, we see hints of through the book of 2 Corinthians were like their rhetorical skills, so their ability to speak, spiritual experiences that they had or could lead others to have, their heritage, seems like there is a, uh, some of them drawing on their Jewish heritage as kind of a means for their authority and their special power in ministry, um, letters of recommendation that they had brought from others. See, these people will tell you how amazing I am. These were the standards and measurements that they were using um, to evaluate themselves. Um, but, but the truth is, we actually have plenty of our own standards like that today. Some of them exactly like them, and some of them just a little bit different. And so as Scott said to you, I, I want to talk to you for just a little bit about how to evaluate a ministry. I want to talk for a little bit about this. How to evaluate um, a ministry or a church or a leader by human standards. Or as Paul might say, by the flesh, according to the flesh. This is how the world, actually, then I, well, this might be out of the way, this is how a lot of Christians gauge whether a church or a ministry is successful or authoritative or powerful. Number one, first, size. And this is the most obvious and, and kind of the most common. To, to look at a church that is large and growing and adding regularly to themselves and just seem to multiply, we can't help but look at that and kind of just be impressed um, that, that looks amazing. There's a church in Louisville, Kentucky. It's, it's considered, I believe still considered, the biggest in our movement. Um, that is the Restoration Movement, the Independent Christian Church Movement. Um, it's called Southeast Christian Church. Um, my cousin was, was working there for a little bit, but they, uh, they run 21,000 every Sunday, um, which is unreal. 21,000 people. Rick Warren's church, a famous church, Saddleback, uh, Saddleback Church in, in California runs 22,000 every week, and, and neither of those are even in the top 10 in, in churches in America. Uh, I, think, I think number one is Lakewood Bible Church in Houston running 52,000 people every week, filling up a basketball stadium, a former, former basketball stadium. They just pack it with people every week. And when you look at that and you hear about a church that's bringing in 50,000 people, like it is only natural to go, God is moving there. Something is happening that people are showing up every week to hear preaching, to hear amazing things are happening. But, but large crowds aren't necessarily a sign of health. Um, in the fall, there's a, another church that brings in about 60,000 every week here in Stillwater, we call it Boone Pickens Stadium, um, where people gather to worship once a week. Um, and, and they bring in more than any church in America, as far as I know, um, at least in one location. But we wouldn't go because a lot of people show up to hear about something or to engage in something that they care about and are devoted in. We wouldn't go, that's a sign of spiritual health right now, right there. That's, that's what we're all aiming for. No, size in and of itself is not a gauge of authority or power or health in a church, in a ministry, or in the leader of that ministry. Here's a second way that people like to evaluate a ministry by the gifts and abilities of its leadership. Is like the Corinthians, we can be pretty impressed by a gifted speaker, uh, a guy who knows his way around a sermon, who knows how to communicate things well, someone who's engaging, someone who has the ability to kind of move you, 
by their words and and we can be really drawn into that. You, you know what it's like to sit in the middle of a conference and hear some amazing speaker, to hear Matt Chandler stand up and talk, to hear Francis Chan and just be drawn in and feel like the Spirit is moving and just go, man, that is amazing. And, and of course, when, when people go, when, when we, we went to Dallas, a group of us on an inner city trip uh, this last fall, over fall break, and, and the church we wanted to go to while we were there was the Village Church, Matt Chandler's. We want to go hear Matt Chandler speak because there's something amazing going on there. We want to be able to be a part of that and listen to that, and we are drawn in by the giftedness of leaders in a church, the giftedness of churches. And, and this is really true for speakers and maybe even more true at your age and stage for the music that can take place at a church. When there are gifted worship leaders bringing gifted music to, it is easy. There's a reason that Hillsong Church does amazing in New York, that all the celebrity Christians want to go to Hillsong Church because there's something cool going on there. That's the kind of church we want to be like. There's a reason that, that churches model themselves after what people do at the Village Church or at Hillsong or whatever because they, because they want to be like that because that seems to be effective because that seems to be the kind of church you want to be in. I remember uh, a few years ago, Ryan Vincent and I, we were helping out with Youthquake, the kind of high school camp conference thing that Sunnybrook does. And uh, Vincent and I were both leading the same small group of junior guys and we were really uh, really kind of amazed how the Holy Spirit was really working that week and seems to be calling every one of our dudes to worship ministry and uh, we thought that was really interesting how Spirit was working like that that week and one of the things that just becomes kind of um, quick to kind of notice there is uh, worship ministry can be a really easy draw because it's a way that you can serve the Lord and kind of be a rock star, um, that you can follow God's calling and sort of gain some notoriety and be really admired. And, and that's, that's also a way for churches to gain notoriety. It's also a way for churches to be admired and to draw a lot of people in by those things because we are easily oppressed. By the way, when I say to evaluate by gifts and abilities, I don't just mean man-made gifts and abilities. I mean even spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit has given. We have a tendency to evaluate a church by how well spiritual gifts are being manifested there, and I would tell you that is wrong. That the Corinthian church was actually known for how gifted it was, how many gifts the Spirit had poured out on it. Paul talks about this, that you have been kind of filled in every way by the Spirit for these things. And you had people who were speaking in tongues, and you had people who were prophesying, and you had people who were teachers, and you had all these things. And yet Paul says, and you are not healthy. And, and I am not impressed um, by those things. That's, that's not the goal. So even people who are... Um, heavily gifted by the Spirit, using their gifts is not necessarily the right standard by which to gauge a ministry or a leader or a church. That leads actually to this third one. How do you know a ministry is doing well? How do you know that it is what it ought to be? Spiritual experience kind of connected to that first one, this idea when you go, you know what it is to go to a worship concert, to, to Bethel or to Hillsong, you know what it is to go to a conference or to a church camp and to, to feel moved as you sing, to feel drawn closer to the Lord, to feel like the Spirit is working in your life and then to hear a really um, dynamic speaker speak and to, to feel like your heart kind of melt and change within you and to be excited about those things, you're um, the worship uplifts your spirit and the preaching encourages you and you feel emboldened and strengthened and, and all of those things can be good but all of those things can also mislead us. Again, um, this is the, the Corinthians and, and what we see is not only did they speak in tongues there but they also put a really, really heavy emphasis. If you read 1 Corinthians, you see that they made a big deal of it that, that those who had that were considered superior because they valued the experience of that and the closeness they felt to God in that. And yet, Paul says, that's not necessarily a sign of maturity. It's not a sign of health. It's not a sign that the Lord commends you when you're having those things. 
Lastly, we evaluate by the influence that a ministry or a minister or a church has. And, and uh, we can evaluate somebody how solid they are, how strong they are by how many speaking engagements they have. Matt Chandler travels the world speaking at different conferences and, and for different churches and at different events all over the place. We can evaluate people by their Twitter followers and by their book sales and by their podcast listens. Um, can I be honest? Can I share a, in, a, in a, a moment of weakness my own tendency to do this foolish stuff? To, to go back to Sunnybrook's podcast stuff and start counting numbers on there on how many listens we're getting there as, as though somehow that's some sort of gauge uh, of, to our effectiveness. And, and I confess to you that I can even get pulled into this to see. And, and my, my thought and my heart is, well, the more listens on there means the more influence we're having for the kingdom, right? And so I ought to be excited about that. I ought to want those things. But, but that does not always mean that something amazing is happening there. We, there was a time in, I don't know if they still consider them this, in, in kind of the early 2000s when Rick Warren was, was called by like secular magazines and newspapers uh, the pastor at Saddlebrook was called America's Pastor. Um, and it was just kind of recognized that the, that the country looked to him. And it was so easy to get excited about that, that people, the influence that he was able to have, man, the Spirit is working there, or, or to hear about Andy Stanley getting to speak at Obama's inauguration chapel service. So like every president, before their inauguration, they go and they'll have a little chapel service at, I think, St. John's Episcopal in Washington, D.C. And when Andy Stanley was asked by the president to go and give the sermon there, just to go, man, that is amazing. That is so cool. Can you imagine what that would be like? And that seems so impressive and it seems so important. And then I remember Jesus' words in Luke 6.26 Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. See if, if influence is a gauge of whether a person is working by the authority of God and power of God or whether their ministry is truly right and healthy um, then most of the prophets failed this one. Um, some of the prophets failed this one. Actually, a lot of them had some negative spiritual experiences. And almost all of the prophets of the Old Testament failed this one. And so it cannot be that these are our gauges for whether or not a ministry is successful, or whether or not a church leader is godly and commended by the Lord, whether or not a church is doing what it ought to be. But... I also need to tell you this, that the opposite of these things are not what we gauge either. See, my tendency, I can have this tendency, sometimes I can get caught up in these things and get excited about them. And then a lot of times I can have the flip, and that is to go that actually churches who are really large, 50,000 people, 20,000 people, the reason they're that large is because they're selling out. Because you're teaching just kind of like a, a, um, like a marshmallow version of the gospel, right? That's, that's real sweet and really, really nice, but doesn't actually fill you up, doesn't have any really content. That's the way you're growing a church. And so I come to be the kind of person who suspects um, churches of large size, who thinks that maybe they're not legit. And, and it can be easy to, to actually go the opposite with these things and start to say the really, truly faithful are the small, or the truly faithful are the people who aren't depending on one guy who's a really excellent speaker to draw a crowd every week. It's the people who are faithful and who are, who are true to these things. But actually, that's, that's not actually true either. That's not actually the problem. See, this is interesting. Paul's not, not condemning the false teachers for having good rhetoric. And he's not condemning them for their giftedness or for spiritual experiences. He's not saying that those things are bad. And I don't think Paul would say, this is bad or this is bad or this is bad. Here's what he would say. It's irrelevant. I'm not telling you that your rhetorical speaking is bad, false teachers. I'm saying that it is completely irrelevant for determining whether you are in the Lord's will or not. I'm saying, I'm saying that the size of your church, big or small, either is fine. I'm just saying it's irrelevant for determining whether your church is healthy and good and solid. And the influence you have in the world, church leader, that's 
sweet, that's, that's whatever, but I'm telling you, it does not matter, and it is not how you are evaluated by the Lord. His problem is, he says, that, that these things do not give those false teachers authority over the church. That's not where that comes from. And I think actually that in the same way that it's not true for the false teachers, it's not true for churches. So here's the question. How do we evaluate a church or a ministry by God's standards? And I will say that um, I believe that the answer is this. No, it's not. Some of you guys are looking at that verse and you're like, I have no idea what, what how that has to do with this. There you go, 1017. <laughs> Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then going on into 18, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Paul's answer for how he knows his authorities there is let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, which means this, okay? Um, to boast in what God has done in you, through you, and for you. That what you glory in, what you get excited about, what comes up in conversation is the things that God has allowed you to be a part of, the things that he is at work in you to do. Paul actually uses this same quote in another place. Um, and it's, it's really interesting. He uses it to the same church in 1 Corinthians uh, 1. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in 28. He's talking to these uh, Corinthians about how a lot of them were not really super impressive when God called him. But he says this, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here's... Here's the, the context Paul says. Here's how you boast in the Lord. You look at this fact that Jesus is your righteousness and Jesus is your redemption and Jesus is your wisdom and your sanctification. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That all these things are true in your life because of Him. In this specific context, in 2 Corinthians 10, what Paul is saying is, here's how I know how I have authority for you. Okay, you want to know? Because God called me to you. Because God called me to this specific area and specific ministry. And by His strength and grace and power, I have been faithful in that. And that's how Paul is able to boast. God set me up to be here. God gave me the strength. And then I've been faithful in the role that He gave me. I love actually one of the ways that Paul brags is in 1 Corinthians 15.10 and he talks about the different apostles and then he talks about himself, how he was called to be an apostle. Even though he says, I used to be a persecutor of the church, even though I used to be a terrible person, God called me to be an apostle and he says this, and I worked harder than all of them, but it was not me, but God at work in me. It was Jesus at work in me that did those things. And so he brags about his work, but actually that it's Jesus who is doing those things. And so a church can boast when God is at work through them to do what he has called them to do. That's what a church can boast. That's, that's how you know that a ministry or a church or a leader is commended by the Lord is, is when they are doing what God has called them to do, which ought to include proclaiming the gospel, it ought to include making disciples and growing them up. It ought to include building up the body. It ought to include a number of different things, but there are different emphases that different churches will take in those, and there are different styles that churches will take. There are churches that are 50,000, like Lakewood in Houston, who are not doing this, who are not faithful to what God is calling them, who are not faithfully proclaiming the gospel. But their size isn't the problem. It's their preaching that's the problem. 
And there are actually small churches of 30 who are also not commended by the Lord. And it's not their size that's the problem. It's their preaching that's the problem. It's the fact that they are not faithful in the area that God has called them. They're not making disciples as they ought to make disciples. And so whether it's done in big buildings or with cool music or with a great speaker is not the point. Although sometimes those discussions need to be had. Sometimes you can build a big building and it's not wise. Sometimes you can try to do really cool music and what you're trying to do is kind of build yourself up. But by and large, buildings and music and speakers and whatever else aren't the point. Faithfulness to God is the point. Faithfulness in whatever area He would have you. And I think actually the same principle would apply to ourselves. There are a lot of ways that a person can evaluate and compare themselves today. And a lot of ways that you're going to be doing that for yourself in the next couple years if you're not already doing that. Um, a lot of people will evaluate the success in their life or the blessing of God on their life or, or what kind of person or Christian or whatever they are um, by a number of things like their abilities, the abilities they have in school or in their career, or the abilities that they have in the church, the gifts that they've been given to serve in the church. There are people who evaluate themselves and compare themselves to others by the salary that they make when they get out of college. There are a lot of people, and some of you in here today, who evaluate yourself by your love life or lack thereof. The fact that you seem to be the only one of your friends who can't find a boyfriend or wondering why it seems like everybody you know seems to be getting engaged right now or whatever, and, and it's not you. There are a lot of people who will evaluate themselves later on in life by their parenting skills and abilities, or lack thereof. And there are a lot of people at this age and stage of life who love to evaluate themselves and their peers by their social awareness and engagement. I feel weird saying the word woke. It just sounds dumb saying it, but that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> And that's how they evaluate whether or not they're truly like spiritual or whether or not they're truly in touch with those things. And all of these things, some of them can be really good things. And some of them are things that we want to try and grow in. Um, but all of these things are irrelevant in determining whether you're the kind of person that God is pleased with. Whether you're the kind of person that the Lord commends. And though we may not boast outright about those things, we have ways of displaying these things through social media posts or through little hints that we drop in conversations that we have with friends or by the things that we buy or surround ourselves with. And as I said, all of these are somewhat irrelevant when it comes to whether or not you are the kind of person that you ought to be, the kind of person that the Lord commends. The person that the Lord commends is like Paul is one who is faithful in the area that God has placed them. Someone who is growing and loving people and serving the Lord as a result of Christ's work in them. And so this plays out in a number of different areas. Like Some of you are going to graduate here and you're going to go on and you're going to make more money than a lot of other people in here. And it could get really easy to, even if you're smart enough to not brag about that, to feel pretty good about that. But have you ever considered that maybe you make more money not just because you're like harder working, but because God specifically wired you in ways that let you work in a field that makes more money? That He put inside of you passions and gifts that lead you into engineering or law or whatever it may be. And so you're doing those things, but the, but the truth is it's because God wired you in a certain way to be in that area. And there are some of you who are going to be making less money than the average person in this group. And, and it could get easy to start feeling um, bad about that or, or to start um, wondering what's wrong with you or comparing your house to the house you just saw your friend buy on, on Instagram or whatever as they posted on that. But, but what if the reason you're making less money is not because you're a worse person or because you're less gifted or talented, but because God has specifically gifted you and enabled you in specific areas like teaching that just aren't going to bring in much cash. In that case, the, your evaluation has nothing to do with your salary. Your evaluation has to do with whether or not you are faithful in the area that you have. 
faithful in the area that God has placed you to, to grow and to love people and to serve people as he has called you to. There's some of you um, who, who might be gifted to actually get to like be in some sort of leadership role in the church or a platform role on the church, someone who leads worship or someone who speaks. And then there's some of you who are going to be running slides in church. There's some of you who are going to be um, using your gifts to encourage brothers and sisters in your small group. There's some of you who are going to be um, watching kids in the nursery. And if for whatever reason you ever get proud about the fact that you are leading worship or, or boasting about your ability to speak or looked at as something like that, um, I, I hope that this text calls you back to this, not, hey, it's wrong that you're a speaker or worship leader, but you recognize that that's completely irrelevant in God's eyes. What matters is how faithful you are wherever he places you in whatever you do. And so let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord that Jesus is doing work in you and that he is using you for his purposes wherever he has you. That's our heart and goal. In the next week, we're going to get to talk about the specific things that Paul boasts about that nobody likes to boast about. Actually, we'll do that probably in the, in the next two or three weeks. But until then, um, we'll be ready for that. And we're done for tonight. We've got snacks that will be out. And I think we've got actually, I mean, a pretty good ratio. There should be quite a few snacks for all of us tonight. So.